Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27 and put, hold your finger there, if you will, and then turn in the back of the hymnal uh, to page 878, where we will first uh, consider our catechism lesson today, Lord's Day 15. As I mentioned, we are going through this section of the Heidelberg Catechism. Three parts of the catechism are? Very good. Guilt, grace, gratitude, sin, salvation, service. All right. However you may have memorized it follows the outline of the book of Romans. We're in the second section of the Heidelberg Catechism dealing with grace or salvation through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the portion of the catechism that we are in now particularly concerned with the Apostles' Creed, which we just recited moments ago. And uh, going through that, and I'm going to make some comments on that, so uh, I'll just turn immediately to the questions. Uh, if I ask the questions, I would ask you to respond with the answers, please. So question 37, what do you understand by the word suffered? That during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might deliver us, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Notice that Christ suffered during his entire life, especially at the end, but his entire life. Uh, what concerns us particularly this morning, question 38, why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? so that he, though innocent, might be condemned by an earthly judge, and so free us from the severe judgment of, that was to fall on us. And is it significant that he was crucified instead of dying some other way? Yes, by this death I am convinced that he shouldered the curse which lay on me, since death by crucifixion was cursed by God. Very good. And now Matthew 27, we're going to read uh, verse 11 uh, through uh, verse 31. Hear what follows for what it is in its entirety, the word of God. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had there a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him. <clears throat> delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? 
But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water <coughs> excuse me, and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. What a damning self-indictment, right? It's just shocking. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Three points to this sermon on the phrase in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. First of all, the relevance of the inclusion of this clause in the Apostles' Creed. Why, why is it here and why is it important? Secondly, the ruination which Matthew records for us in this narrative. And thirdly, the reality of what actually is transpiring here in Jesus suffering under Pontius Pilate. So the relevance, the ruination, and the reality. We recite the Apostles' Creed every week, and it's good that we do so. It's kind of a pledge of allegiance for Christians. But it's quite a fascinating document. If you've never made a study of it, let me give you a couple of things which uh, encompass its fascinating character. In the original Latin in which it was written, it's exactly 100 words. 100 words. And it's amazing when you think of the contents of the Apostles' Creed. The whole of the gospel is in those 100 words. The message of the Bible is seen in summation in those 100 words. From the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the outline uh, of uh, the Apostles' Creed, from creation, redemption, doctrine of the church, Christian life, future things to come, from start to finish, from beginning to end, all in 100 words, summary of the Christian faith. 75 of the 100 words are about Jesus Christ, from his first day on earth to his last day on earth. And yet, there's nothing about what Jesus taught. Nothing about the time period between his birth and um, his death. It's just a fascinating document, the Apostles' Creed. But this phrase, suffered under Pontius Pilate, why is it there? Well, you may have noted uh, in passing or in past study that there's only one other person besides God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that's mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. And that one other person is Pontius Pilate. Now, that's all the more odd why he would be included, because he was the one who sentenced Jesus to death. Why, why is he there? So we pause to ask the question, what is the relevance of mentioning that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate? What's the importance of him being in the Apostles' Creed? Well, there are at least three things which I would submit to you. First of all, it emphasizes that what God has done in Jesus Christ is actual history, all right? 
Pontius Pilate is an undisputed historical figure. He's a figure recognized in the annals of historians, in the record books, uh, as a historical figure. Uh, Believe it or not, there are some people who even today deny that Jesus Christ was actual historical figure. He's just a figment of Christians' um, imagination or some fable that they made up. Um, So it's an indication that what happened in the death of Jesus Christ is actual history. Now, you might say, well, why is that important? Well, it's very important because if we're to have orthodox Christianity, it needs to be a historical religion. It indicates to us that the Apostles' Creed is not just a religious narrative. It's not just a religious tale, like maybe is told about Buddha or Confucius or even Allah in Islam, but uh, that this is uh, immensely important and significant. And Christianity, in order to be orthodox, needs to be historical. All right, One of the things that makes Christianity unique is that it is a historical religion. One of the things that makes the Bible unique is that it is a book that records history, a very special kind of history, salvation history, but history nonetheless. That is not true of the Bhagavad Gita. It is not true of the Koran. It is not true of uh, uh, the annals of Confucius. It's not, it makes one of the things that makes Christianity unique. And yet... What you may not know is that there are many who deny the historicity of the Bible. There are many who deny the historicity of the record of the life and death, uh, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ that is found in the Bible. That is what characterizes liberal Christianity. Now let me explain liberal, all right, because we're not talking politics here, we're talking theology, all right? liberal, J. Gresham Machen, back in the Presbyterian conflict in the early 20th century, wrote a book which was extremely revealing. The title of the book was this, Christianity and Liberalism. What he meant by that is that liberalism, the liberalism which was being promulgated in the Presbyterian Church and Princeton Theological Seminary and others in the liberal wing of the then Presbyterian Church, that liberalism they were espousing was not Christianity at all. In that book, he posited that it's an entirely different religion from Christianity. And one of the reasons why is because they deny the historicity of the accounts accounts that are found in the Gospels. So, why is Pontius Pilate mentioned here important, significant? Well, it indicates that this is actual history. And that underscores for us, as somewhat of a foundation statement, that Christianity is a historical religion. Without its accurate historical origin, it is not Christianity at all. Secondly, though, and perhaps more important, all right, um, Pilate is a representative of all human power. All right, he is the governor. He is a representative of Rome, imperial Rome, the empire at the time, uh, controlling Israel and the Jewish people. All right, and as a representative of all human power, he's a representative of all humanity. Why is that important? Well, because Christianity is a religion that is for all humanity, it is not just for the Jewish people. Now, that's very important. 
if you know your Bible. If you know your Bible, you know that Matthew is a Jew, and he's writing to a Jewish audience, right? As a matter of fact, all the authors of the Bible are Jewish except for Luke, who is a Gentile, writes for a Gentile audience, right? And you'll also recall, if you know your Bible as well, that this was a big controversy in the early church. They actually had to have a, a whole church meeting in Acts chapter 15 because Gentiles were getting saved. Gentiles were believing in Jesus. And if you know the, the uh, antipathy, the, uh, the hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile, that was a big issue. So Jesus came for his own, but his own received him not. He came for the Jewish people. As a matter of fact, he even told his disciples, don't go to the Gentiles. Go rather to the house of Israel, right? But we hear that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate who's a representative of all humanity, which indicates to us that Christianity is a religion that is not limited to the Jewish people. Now, some of us know that. We take it for granted. But it was not taken for granted in Jesus' time. All right? So that's also very important. Forgiveness of sins, new life, salvation is not just for the Jews. It's of the Jews, as Jesus said in John chapter 4 in his discussion with the Samaritan woman, but it is not only for the Jews. It is for all peoples, all nations, all races, all tribes, all tongues, as we hear in Revelation. And Pilate, as a representative of all humanity, highlights that for us. Third, all right, Pilate is the judge, as we read in the account of the verses here. He is the representative of the Roman Empire, and he is executing the justice of the Roman Empire. Now, this is somewhat of a segue statement, so pay attention, all right? If you know your Bibles, you know that in Romans chapter 13, Paul says there is no authority except that which has been established by God. God has established the authorities. So when Pilate is executing justice on behalf of Rome, we need to look beyond Rome, beyond the horizon of the Roman Empire, to who actually delegated authority to Pilate. It was God. And even Jesus told Pilate that. You'll remember, you would have no authority unless it had been given you from above. Now, you begin to see why Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. God has entered into the picture. So it's relevant that Pilate is mentioned for all these reasons, and even more so, as we will momentarily see. Second, though, the ruination, right? But the ruination of what? Now, if you weren't a good student of the Bible, but I know you all are good students of the Bible, you might think that this is the ruination of Jesus' mission. Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God on earth. Here he is being sentenced to death. He's going to be put to death on a cross. He's going to be crucified. You would think that maybe this is the ruination of Jesus' mission. He's going to die. It's over. It's over and done. The mission is ruined. The plan and purpose are going to be a failure. But you need to look a little bit closer, all right? Actually, it's the exact opposite. It's the ruination one, of Roman justice. Secondly, it's the ruination of Roman military discipline. Look at the text with me to verify this, all right? It's the ruination of Roman justice. <clears throat> if you're a student of history, as I try to be, you'll know that Roman justice is the basis, the foundation, and the model for much of Western civil justice. 
And yet here, Roman justice, despite it's held up uh, in the course of history as a model and as a basis, fails miserably. Look at verse 16 in our text. Verse 16. And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Now, Barabbas is a Hebrew name. Bar is son. Abba, as I'm sure most of you know, is father, right? So Barabbas is son of the father, all right? Notice what the text says. He's notorious. This is one of the instances when the translators of the Bible from uh, Greek into, uh, into English really kind of sanitize it, all right? No, Barnabas was not just notorious. He was an insurrectionist in the true sense of the word, all right? He was, uh, he was a rebel. He was an anarchist, all right? He was out to destroy Roman authority. He was out to turn the tables on Roman authority. He was out to ruin Roman authority, all right? He's a revolutionary, if you will. And he's clearly guilty. And yet, Pilate is ready to set him free. And eventually, he actually does set him free. This is not exactly the perfect execution of Roman justice. It's the ruination of Roman justice. Secondly, look at verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Ruination of Roman justice, he listens to his wife. Now, women, what? Don't get upset with me, all right? Everybody knows that the man is the head, but the woman is the neck that turns the head, right? So we need to defer and we need to listen to our wives. But when you're sitting on the judgment seat, when you are executing justice as a judge, you don't get advice from your wife. You might get it from a lawyer. You might get it from a prosecutor. You might turn to the books, but you don't get advice from your wife. No, that was the ruination of Roman justice. Hardly, his wife is hardly an objective, impartial uh, executor of justice. Third, look at verse 23. Pilate's wife says that Jesus is a righteous man, all right? And Pilate himself, in verse 23, believes that Jesus is innocent. Look at verse 23. He said, why? What evil has he done? If we were to turn to the gospel according to Luke, we're not going to do that this morning for time's sake, but if you turn to Luke, Luke five times states for the reader that Jesus is innocent, 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 innocent. As if pounding a nail over and over again to drive it home. He wants to be sure that as you hear this trial, it is indisputably testified that Jesus is innocent. And yet what does Pilate do? Though he believes he's innocent, though his wife indicates he's a righteous man, he's innocent, he hands him over to be crucified. It's the ruination of Roman justice. Finally, verse 24, look at the text. So when Pilate saw he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd. He abdicates his responsibility. 
This is where the term comes from, I wash my hands of it, right? If you ever heard that, it means I'm done. It's not my responsibility. But it was his responsibility. He's abdicating that responsibility. And look at verse 25. All the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. It's very interesting. I was listening to a sermon by James Montgomery Boyce. You all know that when I grow up, I want to be able to preach like James Montgomery Boyce. I was listening to a sermon. Did you listen this morning? Me and Eddie have been listening for about 30 years. Listen, James Boyce, and he mentioned uh, in the book of Acts that this was the cry of the Jewish people in Acts chapter 5. His blood be on us. Just what they said. What a damning indictment. Anyway. So it's the ruination of Roman justice. It's also the ruination of Roman military discipline. Just like the Roman justice system was a model and basis and foundation for Western uh, jurisprudence, so also uh, the Roman military was a model of military discipline. And yet here we find that it is anything but. Look at verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. Now, if you look at the footnote reference there, right, a tenth of a Roman legion, usually about 600 men. These were Pilate's bodyguards. What are they doing? They're not bodyguarding Pilate. They're going to have fun with Jesus. They they take Jesus into the side room, and they're going to have a little fun. They deflect and neglect their responsibility. And look at what they do. They play games with him. Twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, put a reed in his right hand, kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. This is not exactly the paramount military discipline that the Roman army was known for. It is actually the ruination of military discipline. Little Digression here, minor digression. Look at the text. Twisting together a crown of thorns. Now, if you're, if you're a very, very good Bible student, right? I say these things to encourage you to be good Bible students, all right? If you're a very, very good Bible student, what do you recognize when you hear crown of thorns? Curse. curse. Very good, Greg. Very, very good. Yes, the curse, right? When the fall occurred and God came to Adam and cursed him, He said, there'll be thorns and thistles from the ground as a result of your sin. It's a theme, a thread you can actually trace through the Bible. Whenever you see thorns, you should immediately think curse. What has happened? They place a crown of thorns on Jesus' head. He takes the curse upon himself. The curse for sin, the penalty for sin, the punishment for sin is placed on his head. Not yours and not mine. So we're getting a little closer here. I hope the picture is being fleshed out for you. You're getting an idea. God has entered into the picture as we see the relevance of Pontius Pilate. No authority has been established except that which God has established. God established Pilate to be the executioner of justice. We see the ruination of uh, Roman justice, the ruination of military discipline. And we get close, close, closer to what the reality of actually is transpiring here, all right? For those with eyes to see and ears to hear, God's justice is being perfectly carried out in Jesus' suffering under Pontius Pilate. 
And for those with eyes to see, you see the gospel in its blazing glory. Look, Jesus, as already mentioned, is totally innocent. He's guiltless. He's without fault. He's the only human being that has ever lived who is perfectly obedient to every jot and tittle of the Father's word, right? And yet, he's treated as though he is guilty. What we have here, theologically, for you theologues, is penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus is being offered up in suffering under Pentius Pilate as a substitute to take the penalty for the sins of his people. He is innocent and yet treated as guilty. Secondly, Jesus is condemned to die the death of the guilty. The wages of sin is death. Going all the way back to what Greg reminded us in Genesis chapter 3. The soul that sins it must die. The day that you eat thereof you shall surely die. Adam and Eve began to die physically, but they didn't experience the fullness of death. Spiritual death. Separation from God. Eternal separation from God. Why? God postponed it so that Jesus would bear that penalty. It's Jesus who is separated from the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's condemned to die the death of the guilty, to pay the wages of sin being paid by the sinless Son. Look at verse 14, thirdly. Very important. Pay attention. Verse 14. He gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Jesus is silent before his accuser. He won't plead innocent. He is innocent of the two charges which are brought against him. Anybody? What were the two charges that were, G- that were brought against Jesus in his trial? Nobody? Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Very good. Blasphemy. Claimed to be God, right? And he claimed to be king. He was a threat to Rome. Don't you see? Those are the charges that you and I are guilty of. We want to be God. We want to run our own lives. We don't want anyone telling us how to live. I will be the master of my fate, the ruler of my destiny. I will not have God to rule over me. And king, and blasphemy. You and I are guilty of those charges. Jesus doesn't speak up. Jesus remains silent because he's going to pay the penalty that you and I deserve so that those charges may be brought against him and may be borne by him. It's confirmed. Look at verse 26. It's confirmed in verse 26. Then he released, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. <clears throat> Barabbas, son of the father, is guilty, and he's replaced by the true son of the father, Jesus, who is innocent. 
You are Barabbas. You are Barabbas. I am Barabbas. Don't miss the point of what, Jesus, of what Matthew is driving home here. It's not merely a history lesson. It's not merely a demonstration of the ruination of Roman justice and Roman military discipline. Matthew wants to see, wants you to see that you are Barabbas. You are deserve to die. You go free so that Jesus will pay the penalty by his death and bear your sins. The Son of God became the Son of Man. So sons of men might become sons of a heavenly father. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, if you will. And this is the last point, and we'll close with this. 1 Peter chapter 3. Not Pilate, but Jesus is the true judge. Everyone else in Matthew 27 is guilty. Jesus is the true judge. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered under Pontius Pilate, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. No. At Jesus suffering under Pontius Pilate, true justice is being executed. In the great exchange, as Jesus takes the sins of the guilty upon his own head and gives to those who deserve to die perfect obedience and righteousness, that is true justice. That is why Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for recording these things, what to so many people on a cursory, superficial reading of the gospel account seems to be insignificant details about an event in history long ago and far away, you've recorded that we might hear, that we might see Jesus in all his glory as the Savior of hell-deserving sinners. We thank you, we bless you, and we ask that you would Sear it into our souls, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen and amen.